Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Brigham Young was a rough-hewn craftsman from New York whose impoverished and obscure life was electrified by the Mormon faith. He trudged around the United States and England to gain converts from Mormonism, spoke in spiritual tongues, married more than 50 women, and eventually transformed a barren desert into his vision of the kingdom of God. And uh, John Turner has written a new biography, Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. John Turner is assistant professor of religious studies at George Mason University. He says his teaching and research center on American culture and politics, and that he's fascinated by the connections between religion and American national identity. He also is interested in the relationship between religious freedom and religious establishment in 19th century America. Of course, these themes play out in spades in the life of Brigham Young. John Turner, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. I'm happy to be with you. Uh, So you uh, wrote your first book, I believe, on uh, American evangelicalism uh, since 1945, and you you write that you were setting out to uh, write a book on Mormonism and conservative politics since 1945. So what what happened? I got interested in the 19th century. I, I think I concluded that if I wanted to write something on... Mormonism, I really should understand its origins and development. And so I felt the need to to go back to the 19th century. And that time period of the history of the church is just so colorful and dramatic that it was easy to get sucked in, which is what happened to me. Hmm. This is fascinating history. We'll, of course, get into it. Uh, This this theme of religion and American national identity, this continues to this day— Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you, uh, just to, to, to preface this, if you have any thoughts on this this ongoing Mormon moment and the just concluded uh, uh, presidential campaign, which, which some of these themes begin here in the 19th century, continue, and uh, seem even stronger today. Well, my first thought on the, on the Mormon moment is that, yes, there, there was an unusual amount of popular and journalistic interest in Mormonism over the past year in particular, which was really good for any author having a book published on the subject. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, But really, Americans have been fascinated with Mormonism and Joseph Smith since 1830, since the publication of the Book of Mormon and the founding of the church. It just attracted a lot of controversy and fascination from the start. So even though the Mormon moment is is apparently over in terms of presidential politics, I don't think Americans are going to to lose their fascination with this American religion. Hmm. Uh, one of the reviews of your book, this is the New York Times review, Alex Beam, in a generally positive review of, of the book, this is how he begins. For a young religion, Mormonism seems to have more history than it knows what to do with. He goes on to talk about the founding fathers of Mormonism as operatic characters. Uh, I wonder if you can comment on bo- both of those. Uh, more history than it knows what to do with and, and operatic characters. Well, the first is certainly true. And one of the things that I do uh, in in my job is teach... Uh, the history of religions such as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And with all of those religions, you're dealing with, with, with founders and with founding eras for which there is no firsthand or very reliable historical evidence. With Joseph Smith, early Mormonism, and Brigham Young, there are mountains of diaries and minutes and newspaper accounts uh, documenting this history, and I, I think that's what you know. That's what the review uh, suggests, and of course, much of that evidence is is contested and, and controversial. So that's absolutely the case. Of course, uh, for those inside Mormonism, uh, this Brigham Young's life and, and those times were, was a very fight for the survival of the people, and uh, outside mm-hmm. it. The, Mormons uh, were a very interesting and dangerous case of, uh, of treason and uh, and deviance. That, that's certainly true. I mean, Brigham Young, for the 30 years in which he leads the church in what becomes Utah, he's almost constantly at odds uh, with the U.S. government. 
and you know obviously there were there were similar clashes between latter day saints and and other Americans in Missouri and illinois so it's it's very much a religion forged in shape shaped through a cru- crucible of persecution and opposition hmm. I wonder if I could, we could maybe begin at the end here um Paradoxically, I wonder if I could have you read the first couple of paragraphs from the epilogue. Sure. Let me just find it, and this is, uh, uh, interesting. I'll be happy to do that. And, and by the way, uh, facing the page that I'm going to have you read is a famous picture. We talk about this as well. Um, it says, In Memoriam Brigham Young, has Brigham Young with all of his wives in, in bed. This is sort of a, a popular character of, of Brigham Young in, in the national press, I imagine, today. Absolutely, and um, newspapers and magazines enjoyed satirizing uh, Brigham Young and the Mormons, and that continued right after his death. Uh, and you know, one one magazine had a great series of articles on who should take uh, Brigham Young's place, and they suggested men like Henry Ward Beecher, who was a famous Protestant uh, preacher and philanderer. So they, they were they were merciless toward Brigham Young in life and in death. Uh, where would you like me to start? Perhaps uh, uh, with just, throughout yeah, just adult be, life. Um, a little see. further down. Uh, no, just uh, just the first two paragraphs of the epilogue. Oh, the first two paragraphs yes. of the epilogue. Gotcha. Okay. On September first, eighteen seventy-seven, a great crush of mourners filed through the Salt Lake City Tabernacle to see Young's body. The next day, after the tabernacle reached its capacity, 2,000 individuals stood outside the building during the funeral. After the hymns, prayers, and eulogies concluded, a large procession brought Young's corpse through the Eagle Gate outside his mansions and eventually to a family cemetery just to the east of Temple Square. At the burial service, a choir sang, O my father, celebrating Young's return to his heavenly, divine parents. Not hesitating to speak ill of the dead or his religion, the Salt Lake Tribune expressed its hope that now the whole decaying structure of Mormonism will rapidly fall to pieces. Young had positioned himself as a bulwark against the tide of political anti-Mormonism and a potential flood of Gentile capital and settlers. Perhaps with Young out of the way, the dam would break, and the Mormons would at the very least abandon polygamy and theocracy, if not the entire substance of their religion. Echoing the language of white Southern Democrats who had regained control of the American South, the Tribune predicted that Utah will be Americanized and politically and socially redeemed. Of course, that prediction was only partly true, Tom. Yes, yeah, and you got to say that uh, Brigham Young's successors uh, d- did make some modifications. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. polygamy was renounced by the church; statehood was achieved. Mm-hmm. But uh, you say one of the legacies of Brigham Young is that he created a people. He created a people. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, the church had been plagued by a great amount of infighting and dissension during its first 15 years. And a couple of things helped Brigham Young create a people, just the rite of passage of traveling uh, out of the East or from England to Utah was a fundamental experience for many Latter-day Saints. And Brigham Young also simply insisted uh, that the Latter-day Saints operate with a common sense of purpose and and unity and he instilled that that value that cohesion uh into the church you write that uh one of his phrases i'm uh, trying to I wrote it down here um but he, he said i want hard times mm-hmm. this was important in uh, it, i guess that was one of his purposes he wanted that uh, tightly knit cohesive community he did and he often contrasted uh, what became Utah with California, where people would go to chase riches and try to get rich quickly and just be out for themselves. 
And that's not what he envisioned uh, for his people. He wanted them to be willing to sacrifice themselves for the church, perhaps to arrive uh, in Utah and be willing to be sent to southern Utah to grow cotton or attempt to produce uh, iron. Uh, he wanted that, that dedication and that self-sacrifice. We're going to take a brief break here uh, soon, and when we come back, I want to uh, go with more traditional chronology. And uh, Brigham Young, before he met Joseph Smith and, and embraced Mormonism, and uh, and then uh, go through the, the chronology a little bit. I'm interested, though, before we go to break, um, what you think the, the effect of Brigham Young is today on the on the Mountain West? Uh, there are some effects that, of course, we you know famously we we see and probably notice if we think about it: the wide streets, the grid pattern, the mm-hmm. you know the, all of that. But uh, are there some effects in the legacy of Brigham Young on on the West? We may not think about, may not realize. Well, uh, you know, the well, wide streets, you know, brings to mind just his role in the colonization and settlement of the Mountain West and really the Southwest in in some respects as well. If you drive from uh, Logan uh, down to St. George, especially after you pass uh, Provo now, you know, you regularly encounter a a settlement uh, that he planned. So just the the landscape of settlement, I think, is, is a huge legacy. I think another legacy of Brigham Young that is often neglected is his role as a temple builder. Uh, he dedicated the site for four uh, LDS temples in Utah. Joseph Smith had been more of a one-at-a-time builder of temples. Brigham Young talked about building hundreds, even thousands of temples. And especially in the Mountain West, Mormon temples are an important part of the landscape as well. And I wonder, I sometimes wonder what would have happened if uh, Brigham Young's vision for Deseret had happened, which was, <laughs> this was a side, he, he, in fact, he ruled over a, an area that uh, is approximately the size of France or, or larger. Mm-hmm. Well, the Mormons asked the U.S. government to give them a great amount of territory, I think about one-fifth of what is now the continental United States. And they didn't get that much, but the original Utah Territory included all of Nevada and a large chunk of Colorado and Wyoming as well. So at first, Brigham Young was ruling over a large amount of land. As uh, is written in the, in the blurb for this book, Brigham Young, pioneer prophet, uh, Brigham Young was a rough-hewn craftsman from New York whose impoverished and obscure life was electrified by the Mormon faith. We'll get into that part of the story following break. Our guest is John Turner, assistant professor of religious uh, studies at uh, George Mason University, author of this biography of Brigham Young, and uh, we'll be back with more following the break. New York and L.A. account for a fraction of our landmass, but New York's the mecca for writers and artists, and L.A., the heart of the film industry. I'm Jim Fleming. Next time, under the best of our knowledge, artists speak out about making it in the heartland and getting past the gatekeepers on the coasts. It's to the best of our knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the law firm of Hilliard, Anderson, and Olson, with offices in the Riverwoods Business Complex at 600 South Main in Logan. Concentrated practice areas include real estate and business and tax law. Information is online at hao-law.com. On Access Utah today, we're talking about Brigham Young. The new book is Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. The author is John Turner, who's Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. Brigham Young, of course, had an outsized effect on all of the American West and uh, on religion in America. John Turner says he's interested in that intersection, religious uh, freedom versus religious establishment, and uh, how religion in America has affected the, uh, the national character. These themes, of course, play out 
in the life of uh, Brigham Young. You're welcome to join this conversation, by the way, if you would like, 1-800-826-1495. Toll free, anywhere you are, 1-800-826-1495. Or uh, you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Brigham Young, a rough-hewn craftsman from New York who's impoverished and obscure life, was electrified by the Mormon faith. I wonder if you could tell us about Brigham Young's early life. Well, it wasn't – I don't think it was a terribly happy existence. His family moved around uh, western New York uh, regularly. His father uh, never achieved any stability or riches. His mother died when he was 14 years old, and his father – uh, sent him out of the house a couple of years later to, to find his own way. And he, in many ways, repeated his father's life. He never achieved any earthly success as a young man, moved from town to town, from job to job. And he also did not achieve the spiritual satisfaction that he was looking for. When he was in his early 20s, he had a Methodist uh, conversion and joined a Methodist church. But after a year or two, he felt spiritually despondent. He later said that he didn't feel an assurance of his salvation. And I think it's hard to, to explain exactly why that didn't satisfy him, but he was looking for something else. And when he encountered the Book of Mormon in 1830, uh, he spent a couple of years uh, contemplating the new book and assessing uh, this new religion. And it very much uh, changed the direction of his life once he accepted it. And it, the phrase that you use, I think, is electrified him. It's, what what was it about Mormonism? that? Well, it was almost um, literally electrified him in, in a spiritual sense. One of the things that convinced him of Mormonism's truth was seeing a group of uh, elders, missionaries, speak in spiritual tongues. And shortly after his conversion, Brigham Young himself experienced uh, that gift, if you will. Uh, he spoke in tongues. And many uh, Mormons had that experience in the 1830s and often described it as if an electric shock uh, were, was passing through them. So I think he was spiritually electrified uh, by this new faith. What do you think was it about his, I don't know, character, his background? He, he, he was obscure. He mm -hmm. wasn't particularly well-educated. Uh, some of his colleagues were better educated. John Taylor, for example. Mm -hmm. um, what, what was it about Brigham Young that uh, made him as we see in hindsight, quite well suited to lead a people on an exodus, build up this, the colonies in the West? Well, I think two things caused him to, to rise up through the ranks of the church hierarchy and be in position to do so. The first of those is that spiritual fire. Uh, that was very evident, especially during his first 15 or so years in the church. I think that compensated for his lack of education, his lack of refinement at public speaking. Uh, he had a clear and obvious spiritual fervency. And secondly, he was fiercely devoted to Joseph Smith. Brigham Young, as a young man, had a very strong independent streak. He didn't want to be under anybody else's thumb. But he made an exception uh, for Joseph Smith. He accepted him as his prophet. And even as many of Smith's other followers uh, fell away or rejected him, Brigham Young didn't. And so those two things, I think, establish him as a leader. And then I would say, finally, he very pragmatically assesses the state of the church at the time of Joseph Smith's death and concludes that the people need a much firmer hand than they perhaps had under Joseph Smith. And he provides that that firmer leadership. And it was very firm, wasn't it? And in fact, you write that after his death, there were some church leaders who made allusions uh, to this, that they 
thought it was too firm. I was absolutely firm, and he at times bragged about that. He once commented that the church uh, did not experience 10% of the dissent under his leadership as it had under Joseph's. So he very much saw dissent as a real threat to the church, something that had taken uh, Joseph Smith's life and nearly destroyed the church, and he was absolutely determined not to allow that to happen again. I wonder if you could uh, paint for us Brigham Young's personality in a few strokes. It's a sort of unfair question, but uh, it, sometimes when a, people, a person becomes an icon, it's, uh, you know, it's the George Washington syndrome. Sure. It, it is hard to paint in a, in a few strokes because it was incredibly complex. Uh, Brigham Young was a man who might dance past midnight with his people and a day or two later upbraid them for their frivolity. Uh, he was a man who had what I call just a wicked uh, sense of humor, a sharp coarse, sometimes profane sense of humor. Uh, he also could be aloof when, when he encountered great burdens and difficulties. He sometimes simply liked to withdraw unto himself. Uh, so he's a man who is, is, is hard to pin down in terms of personality, and I think he could be unpredictable and irascible, uh, which was perplexing, I think, uh, both for his followers and, and opponents at times. Uh, he certainly was and remains, to some extent, a, a lightning rod. He was he was revered by his people for the most part, I think, and uh, was seen in the, the most majority of, of terms by those outside the church. Absolutely. Uh, for those outside the church, he was typically viewed as a tyrant, as a lecher because of his many marriages. You know, some outsiders who traveled to Utah moderated those those opinions uh, somewhat and developed a, a respect for him. I think within the church, he was he was very much beloved as the people's savior after Joseph Smith's death, and had a great amount of of respect because of the Exodus and because of his early missionary work. I think. There were also people within the church that, that feared him, particularly some of his uh, fellow leaders near the top of the church hierarchy. We do have a uh, caller. Let's uh, bring in uh, Kevin from Smithfield. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the program. Thank you. I, I hope it's not rude if I ask the guest if he's a Freemason. But before I ask my the question I really wanted to ask, is that okay to ask or would uh, that be better uh, not to? I'm not a Freemason, and it's, I, I'm not offended to be asked. That's fine. Um, I'm, Salt Lake Tribune on May 4, 2002, documented what appears to be a, a significant uh, Freemason connection between Mormon uh, Joseph and uh, the Freemasons. I'm wondering if Brigham had a similar Freemason history as Joseph. He didn't have a Freemason history. He wasn't a Freemason until he joined the Lodge in Nauvoo, which Joseph Smith established in the early 1840s. I don't think Freemasonry was especially important to Brigham Young. I think he understood it, as some other Mormon men did, as a stepping stone to something else. And I think that's the way Joseph Smith viewed it. I don't think he attempted to hide the fact that uh, Freemasonry had influenced his thought, especially as he thought about developing new rituals. Yes, that's the main, that's the connection, is, is my understanding, too. And and just for listeners, um, inter- if they are interested, interested, it's interesting that you mentioned the Nauvoo, Illinois um, uh, temple, or wh- whatever you call it, because it was rebuilt, I sup- I'm understanding, in 2002. And the Freemason connection was the square and the compass, which was on top of the original one. And they omitted that to apparently, for lack of a better term, to hide the connection between Freemasonry and the LDS faith. 
My knowledge of these things mostly ends after 1877 and Brigham Young's death. Uh, but no, that that early connection is 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 interesting, and I think Joseph Smith. Yeah, I think his view is simply he was happy to draw on what he considered truth wherever he found it. And, you know, his followers would have been aware of such connections in, in the 1840s. Well, it's interesting that you use that word truth because he took an oath as a Freemason, which, uh, which he betrayed, is my understanding, and that's what led to his death. Those were Freemasons in the gang that killed uh, Joseph for lying about his oath to not reveal the uh, practices of Freemasonry, which he brought into the LDS faith. Well, there are a lot of theories about about the reasons behind Joseph's murder. I tend to be more persuaded by, you know, that it was primarily motivated by political uh, anti-Mormonism, but... I haven't. I haven't fully investigated it. Thanks, uh, Kevin. We, Michael Hoffman might be a good source to look at. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Uh, appreciate your call. Uh, he called one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Calling from Smithfield, there one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Or you can email us at uh, upraxis at gmail dot com. Upraxis at gmail dot com. We're talking with John Turner, author of a new biography of Brigham Young called Brigham Young Pioneer Prophet. And let's go to our next caller, Scott, calling from Hiram. Welcome to the program, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I had a question uh, from Mr. Turner. We had just finished, uh, we went and saw the movie Lincoln uh, last week, and I was my question had to do with Brigham Young and his relationship with uh, Stephen Douglas uh, and Abraham Lincoln and also the concept of state sovereignty. It seemed like he was very much pro-state sovereignty, and then during the course of the Civil War, uh, tended to break with Abraham Lincoln, and seemed to be more of an advocate of the Southern cause. And just interested in your thoughts. Well, I've, uh, thank you, Scott. Those are great questions, and I think it's a fascinating uh, chapter uh, in Utah history. Uh, Brigham Young very much was a proponent of states' rights. Part of his problem was he didn't have a state. He only had a territory. And so that meant that Utah was um, ultimately governed by by the U.S. government, and that has much to do with explaining uh, conflicts between uh, Utah and the U.S. government in the the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, In terms of the Civil War, uh, certainly Brigham Young saw it as providing Utah with relief from the threat of federal intervention. So early during the war, uh, he's quite clear he doesn't want Utah mixed up in the secession movement. Um, and he's not pro-slavery in the sense of wanting, to, wanting Utah to be a slave society like the South. Uh, but he does cheer early Southern victories privately, not publicly because they mean that the Union's not going to be able to turn its attention to Utah again. I think later in the war, when the casualties have have mounted to simply monstrous uh, levels, um, he doesn't talk that way uh, as much anymore. Thank you for the for the call, Scott. Appreciate okay, that. Thank you very much. Uh, before we go to our next caller, we do have another another caller. I want to follow up. Uh, this was an interesting uh, sort of a, a contradiction. The especially after the Civil War, uh, the, the U.S. government from the from their side, uh, which had been at least uh, you know accepting of of states' uh, sovereignty, and I guess maybe because of the the way the Civil War came out. Uh, definitely wanted to assert their control over the West, and that there began a conflict with, with Brigham yes, Young and the Mormons. And there were some uh, Republicans, some radical Republicans in particular, who wanted to apply the same tools of Reconstruction to Utah in particular as were being applied to the American South. Let's go to our next caller, Len, in Logan. Len, uh, thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, I'd simply like to ask the guest what Brigham Young of Orderville and other kinds of social experiments would make of the current 
Osei the Mall at City Creek um, and the emphasis on wealth embedded in it? Well, that's, that's a great question, Len. Um, I think you'd be very surprised at recent developments. I think, you know, ultimately his concern um, was to promote self-sufficiency and keep Mormon wealth out of the hands of Gentiles. Um, so I don't know all of the ins and outs of the uh, City Creek development, but I think if he thought it was going to enrich uh, Latter-day Saints at the expense of Gentiles, he would be in favor of it. Uh, you're right, though. I mean, he certainly promoted communitarian um, economic projects, which you mentioned Orderville. That's probably among the you know one of, one of the rare times in which you know a group of people thoroughly embraced his vision. I think. Primarily, he wanted to promote self-sufficiency and kind of economic autarky, almost keeping uh, keeping Utah's wealth in the hands of the church himself and its people, and out of the hands of outside capitalists and bankers. Thanks, Len. Thank you. Appreciate your question. And uh, Len called 1-800-826-1495. You can as well. We'd uh, love to have your participation in the program. Talking about Brigham Young, whose legacy still is uh, reverberating throughout the western United States and, of course, in religion in America. Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet, is the book. It's a new biography by John Turner, who's assistant professor of religious studies at George Mason University. And the number, again, is 1-800-826-1495. And uh, the email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, we're going to take a brief uh, break in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, talk uh, briefly about uh, Brigham Young's efforts, and, and I think successful efforts, to keep this religion unique. A new new strain of religion, new sort of religious DNA. It uh, it could have uh, kind of uh, evolved more back toward Protestantism, but it did not, in, in part because of Brigham Young. Yeah, you know, I think the the most important aspect of that in terms of Brigham Young's leadership is um, his emphasis upon uh, temple ordinances after Joseph Smith's death. He tells the people that he is he and the twelve apostles can best carry out Joseph's legacy and vision because they have the keys, they have the authority uh, to lead the people through these sacred ordinances. And he insists that the Latter-day Saints at least try to stay in Nauvoo, finish the temple uh, before they have to leave. And ultimately, he leads thousands of people through ordinances in Nauvoo. And other competitors uh, who might have led the church after Joseph's death were not as closely connected to that sort of ritual development. And I think that remains a, a fundamental difference between Mormonism and American Protestantism. And I attribute a lot of that to, to Brigham Young's leadership after Joseph's death. And this was one of the reasons why it was uh, Mormonism was so noted, so hated, seen as such a, a deviance. Well, it was. I mean, I, some and and sometimes that had to do with with other rituals. I think you know a lot of Americans saw something sinister in the endowment ceremony, and they found uh, baptism for the dead, you know, an oddity. And then, of course, plural marriage was something that engendered a tremendous amount of opposition. And that was another part of Joseph's legacy that, that Brigham Young uh, accepted and promoted after his death. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, I'm going to have uh, our guests to talk a little bit about uh, politics, the the political and uh, even uh, verging on, on war that existed uh, between Brigham Young, the uh, the Great Basin Kingdom, and the federal government. Some of those uh, themes reverberate uh, today, and some of those in reverse. It's very interesting. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break.
I'm Ira Glass of This American Life, and each week on our program, as you may have heard, we choose a theme. We bring you different stories on that theme. But this week we are trying something a little different. The theme is things that happened this week. That's right, things that happened in the seven days leading up to the program, from stories that you might have seen in the news, though we will cover them in a completely different way, to stories so local and personal you will not find them anywhere else this week. Friday morning at 3, again at Sunday afternoon at 2, on Utah Public Radio. The bidding has started at Utah Public Radio's holiday online auction, where you will find art, electronics, restaurant, and travel packages. These items are located statewide, and you can still add your item to the auction until the auction ends Tuesday, December 11th. Check it out at upr.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our subject is Brigham Young, the second president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet, is the title of a new biography from John Turner, who's assistant professor of religious studies at George Mason University. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or email us at upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, very interested about this uh, in this conflict uh, between what essentially was a Great Basin Kingdom, to use the title mm-hmm. of Leonard Arrington's book, uh, in the middle of, or you know, on, on the edge of a, a democracy. Uh, from the Mormons' point of view, they had been persecuted and they had left the United States to try to find some peace. And Brigham Young's very defensive of, of, of any um, attacks there. I could see from the the federal point of view. Uh, this is part of America now, and, and we need to assert some sovereignty. I wonder if you could uh, outline uh, some, some of that. Uh, it was an ongoing battle, and sometimes really was a battle, for decades. It was, and it was it was almost a bloody, very bloody war at one point. I think Brigham Young's perspective was that once his people had been expelled from Illinois and the U.S. government hadn't protected them, they had the right to govern themselves. And he also saw that as a basic aspect of republicanism, that people have the right to self-government. In his mind, the Mormon people, by choosing baptism, by choosing his leadership, by traveling west under his leadership, they had chosen to be governed uh, by the priesthood. And he thought that uh, the priesthood uh, should have the right to control affairs in Utah. Of course, under the territorial system, uh, the U.S. government had the right to appoint officers uh, for Utah. Congress, or President uh, Fillmore, initially appoints Brigham Young as Utah's governor. This is before the public uh, announcement of polygamy. Uh, There's still some sympathy for the Mormons because of their expulsion from Illinois. And so he chooses Brigham Young. But he also chooses... Uh, non-Mormon judges and other officials for the territory. And as the years pass, there are constant constant conflicts between those non-Mormon judges and officials and Brigham Young. And he tends to make their time in Utah rather uncomfortable. And many of them go back to Washington with stories of monarchy and polygamy. And for some years, there's no response. And then in 1857, uh, President James Buchanan decides to replace Brigham Young with a non-Mormon governor. He's essentially concluded that Brigham Young is not loyal uh, to the U.S. government. And he's worried the Mormons will resist. And so he sends an army to accompany the new governor to Utah. Brigham Young, for a time, Um, decides to resist militarily, and there's a standoff uh, for half a year. Mm. Um, And uh, this continues for for years and and, and for decades, and uh, wasn't really resolved until after Brigham Young's death. Certainly not, not fully resolved until the abandonment of uh, polygamy uh, beginning in 1890. 
and I would say throughout Brigham Young's lifetime, especially his last 15 years, there's a lot of talk on the part of uh, American politicians about the need to stamp out polygamy. But I think the crux of the conflict during those years was one of political control. You know, who is going to control Utah's courts and uh, who is going to control the territory's politics? And I, I think questions of theocracy were probably more fundamental to the conflict than polygamy. Did Brigham Young move at all in his thinking on, on these issues over over the course of his life? I don't think he moved in his thinking, but over the last decade of his life, he comes to grips with the fact that there are going to be more non-Mormons in the territory and that the U.S. government is asserting some control. He tries to stave off as much of that as he can, but he abandons some of the, the bellicose uh, rhetoric that he used back in the 1850s. And so he does, he does adapt. He, he becomes a bit shrewder, I think, in his dealings with the U.S. government toward the end of his life. By the way, was, was this, his views on these matters, were they generally shared by others in the uh, leadership hierarchy, or, uh, or, or, was, or were there some dissenters? I don't think he, you know, I don't think he experienced a tremendous amount of dissent in terms of his political leadership. Uh, one of your callers brought up his economic leadership, and, and there was more pushback against against that. Um, certainly, there 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 were some who questioned his tight control of the territory's politics, but but not many. And I think a lot of Latter Day Saints shared his sense of the U.S. government as a threat. And so when soldiers, for instance, come to Utah, they are potentially um, another mob, uh, as the saints had experienced in the East. And bringing this forward, um, I'm struck by some reversals of, of, of some of these uh, positions among uh, church members today. For example, um, into the 20th century, you find many church members embracing the federal government, uh, staunch conservatives, very much a patriotic feel. Uh, very patriotic. And that certainly changes. Not long after Utah statehood, a lot of uh, Mormons fight in the Spanish-American War and then World War One, And, you know, more, more you know, even under Brigham Young, there, there was a complex relationship to the nation and uh, the, the, its heritage. They, they see the United States not as something bad, but uh, as, as a nation that has departed from its, its founding. So there's, there's a reverence for the U.S. Constitution and the founding of the republic. And I think many Mormons, uh, once the conflict with the U.S. government ends, are, are easily able to embrace patriotism because of, of, of those views as well. And in terms of religious acceptance, uh, I'm struck by, you write that one of uh, Brigham Young's maxims was mind your own business. Mm -hmm. His prescription for both the saints and the Gentiles, and contrasting that with today, where the uh, church is actively reaching out, seeking more acceptance. Yeah, I don't think Brigham Young had, had any real desire for the approval of outsiders. I mean, he knew that uh, American... Protestants were, were going to have a very negative view of, of Mormonism, and he wasn't engaged in any sort of PR efforts uh, to change that. And nowadays, as you know, the, the LDS Church is, is much more savvy in such matters. Yeah, maybe that's the, the positive way to put it, savvy. Um, uh, I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about what you call the excesses of the 1850s. These, I, I think you, you view uh, some of these things as some mis, uh, missteps by Brigham Young. Definitely. I think he, he misread uh, the U.S. government, didn't have a, a good understanding of Washington politics. And so he does many inflammatory things and says 
makes many inflammatory statements. I think with the sense that there isn't going to be any response, and I think that was an enormous political error. I think in terms of his leadership of the church, there was there was a lot of violent rhetoric, threats of violence, and also some incidents of violence which he approved of in the territory. And I think that created you know, a, a tense, negative, and sometimes violent climate in the territory. Do you think Brigham Young had a direct involvement in any way with the Mountain Meadows Massacre? I don't think he had a direct involvement in terms of ordering it because I don't see credible evidence suggesting that he did so. I think his policies, and this takes place while that army is marching to Utah in 1857, his policy of talking about the fact that he will no longer stop Indians from attacking wagon trains, his preparing a military defense against the U.S. Army, uh, lots of negative talk about Gentiles. I think those sorts of things created a climate and atmosphere in which the massacre was conceivable, but I don't see him as having ordered it. Just have a couple minutes left here. Uh, what do you think, a few bullet points, what is the legacy of Brigham Young? I think uh, two things that I briefly mentioned earlier. In terms of the church, I think it's the ethic of self-sufficiency, obedience, and unity. I think that still very much shapes Mormonism today. I think his uh, temple building and continuation of Joseph Smith's ordinances, I think those are also uh, a big part of his legacy. I think the opposition to the U.S. government uh, also, this has faded a great amount, but did create a lasting sense of opposition and, and persecution in terms of the way Mormons viewed the rest of the country. Very interesting new biography. Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. John Turner is the author. He's Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at George Mason University. Uh, very interesting read, and it's out and available now. Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet. John Turner, pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Tomorrow on the program, we invite you to join us for a discussion of sex trafficking. It's an unfortunately growing problem uh, with uh, some problems here in Utah. We recently had a case. We'll be talking with uh, Attorney General-elect John Swallow and with Linda Swith, uh, Smith rather from Shared Hope International. That's tomorrow on the program. And for uh, producer Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton. The holidays are a happy and warm time of year when families can get together and create great memories, eat wonderful food, and share holiday cheer. Seems like the perfect time to discuss colonoscopathies. So, I just lost four of my five regular listeners by using this word, but I'd like some sympathy because I started my holiday season this year going in and getting this overdue, dreaded procedure that I can neither pronounce nor spell. I probably shouldn't write about this because there really isn't anything I can say about it that anyone wants to read. And to even hint about it being a less unpleasant thing is politically incorrect because it's a procedure that saves lives, including my own. But I would just like to say on the record, this had better be necessary. I'm a bit skeptical about the tests they tell us that we have to do and wonder if they follow their own advice. I have a file folder I have kept that just includes studies people do that seem to contradict each other on a yearly basis. I have learned that any study done on chocolate, caffeine, wine, for example, will be reversed in a matter of months. I once read about a study that had been done that said that some two-thirds of all studies completed were deeply flawed. At first I felt vindicated. I was right to be skeptical, but then I realized that the study I was reading about could very well be one of the flawed studies. It's clear that some people truly believe that colonoscopathies are necessary, and they have ample proof that they save lives. I mean, they make their living doing this procedure. Now, if you're going to say, 
Sure, they do this because they make lots of money doing it. Don't even start. Stop right now. You're just making yourself look like a dolt. I don't know if being a doctor or a nurse who does this puts you in the top 1% or not, but I know that it should. If there's ever a job that deserved top pay, this one is it. Uh, the people who make the nasty drinks you have to chug to have this procedure done, they get no gratitude from me. Sorry, I know and they know they could do better. They're just being mean. When I had my procedure, I had a series of extremely positive, happy, funny people talking me through things, and I find that to be remarkable. You see, I made sure they knew I was there every minute that they made me wear that embarrassing open-at-the-back dress. I complained, I cried, I whined, I screamed every time I saw a needle, a tube, a bed, a Band-Aid, a nurse, or a table saw. I have a good imagination, and I perceive everything as a serious threat in such situations. And I have discovered that, if I'm annoying enough, they will put me to sleep sooner instead of later. And this is one of those few times where being asleep is the most effective way to deal with a severe, life-threatening situation. Uh, campaign commercials are the only other thing that comes to mind. Sometimes I think I have it bad at work because I have deadlines that just keep coming and coming, keeping me up at night. Poor me. At least when my desk gets messy, I don't need plastic gloves to clean it up. If they can be trusted, and I believe they can, they have now saved my life twice. If I had doubts, they presented me with the evidence after the procedure. Tip. If you go in for one of these procedures, read the nice little printed page they give you, and then close your eyes, pull off the back pages, throw them away, tearing them up as you go. Don't, don't open your eyes until you're done. My doctor gave me color pictures of things that should never, ever, ever be made into color pictures. While the rest of you were grateful this time of year for the traditional things like family, warm houses, stuffing, and iPhone apps, I'm going to break ranks and be grateful for something no one ever talks about. Today, I'm grateful for the doctors and nurses, especially mine, who do this procedure day after day so that the rest of us can live to make up silly vocational things to complain about. They are the heroes who never get any credit. I do have one suggestion for such medical professionals, however, and I apologize in advance for being too direct. Photography is not a good hobby for you. Try stamp collecting, rugby, or rock climbing. Clearly, you do not have any good instincts about where to point a camera. Thank goodness I'm not friends with any of you on Facebook. I would hate to see your vacation pictures. This is Steve Eaton. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.